you get a church Bible, we're going to be on page 589. For everyone else, we're going to be John chapter 19, 17 through 27. My name is Dan. I'm a leader here at Grace Fellowship Church, and I'm going to start today with a confession. My confession is that I don't like leading very much. Now, I don't just mean at Grace Fellowship. I mean any aspect of leadership. Anything where I have to go first and I have to initiate. But you know what? If that were it, if all I had to do was do more work as a leader, it'd probably be okay. I mean, right? If you just had to work a little more, maybe got paid a little more, it would be nice. But here's the part about leading that I'm talking about when I say I hate leading. What I often get in exchange for all that extra work is I usually get a lot more criticism than I do praise. Right? Parents? Moms? Is your job hard? I mean, you you get... You get cards and, and brunch today, and, and that's cool. But your job is hard year-round. What about you, work managers or maybe church leaders? There's a lot of work that you do, and what you get in exchange for that is you usually get a lot of criticism. What I mean is you get a big red bullseye, and it's painted on your front and on your back, and it's always there even when you don't deserve it. I know sometimes we deserve criticism, though. I, I, I asked my wife recently how I could do better as a leader. Here's what she said. She said, don't be afraid of making wrong decisions. See, my wife gets it. She knows my struggles as a leader. She knows that I don't like making decisions because I don't want to risk maybe getting that criticism afterwards. So I just don't want to risk it. So I just do whatever's comfortable. I just keep doing it even if there's a better option out there. Maybe you're like that. The reality is that I don't even, I don't even like the bullseye when I deserve it. Even when the criticism is justified, I don't like it. Here's the cool thing, though. Jesus is unlike anyone in history. He never deserved criticism. He never deserved the bullseye. If anyone should have not had a bullseye on their chest, it was Jesus. But in this week's text, he's not only going to be painting a bullseye right on his chest, he's going to get a bullet right in the center of his chest. Here's, here's why. Here, here's the big point. In doing this, in taking that, Jesus isn't just going to prove he's a good leader. He's not just going to be a model that we should follow. He's going to prove that he's actually king of everything by dying. And that is baffling to the world, but we're going to make sense of it today. Here's one of the ways we're going to make sense of it. We're going to look at how, how he's going to suffer right here in today's text. And that by doing that, he's actually fulfilling laws and fulfilling prophecies about him that were written hundreds of years before. And all of those things point to him. 
And all of this, all his suffering and dying today is so those people who demand his death would actually call him king one day. And that you would call him king one day. I'm real excited for this. John chapter 19, 17 through 27. I'm just going to read all 10 verses and then we're just going to break it down into sections. This is God's word. And Jesus went out bearing his own cross, this is the crucifixion, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, wove in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his woman, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, this first section on your outline is the first thing that Jesus did for you. The sermon is called, How the King Treated You. Last week, it was How Not to Treat a King. So the first thing that the king did for you is he was cast out. And you'll notice a little 17 next to it. That means I'm taking this whole section and it's on one verse. That is not a typo because this verse is really important. Jesus went out bearing his own cross. See, to someone watching this crucifixion, if you were there, Jesus might just seem like a criminal carrying out his punishment. But what Jesus is actually doing is he's obeying God's law. It looks like he's paying the penalty for for breaking the law, but Jesus is actually fulfilling the law. Bear with me if that doesn't make any sense. I'm going to dig up some Old Testament verses, and I'm going to prove it. You don't have to go there, but I'm going to go all the way back to Numbers 5. It's the Old Testament law. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And then elsewhere in Leviticus, it's also 
part of God's law. This is speaking about those who dishonor God. Bring out of the camp the one who has cursed or blasphemed God and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Now, why did I go there? Why did I go to the Old Testament? Because God's law, what I just read, written for the people of Israel, was written because God hates sin. God hates sin. When you sin, he doesn't just shrug. When you sin, he does not say, oh, you know, I'm going to just cut slack. When you sin, he does not look at your life and say, hey, nobody's perfect. Indeed, in Isaiah 13, the Lord himself says, behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy the sinners from it. God hates sin because God is holy. He is set apart in that he literally, he can't coexist with it. It goes against who he is. Now back to Jesus, back to the story. Where is today's story taking place? This is Jerusalem. Jerusalem in scripture all throughout is called God's holy city. This is a land that God, in a way, you might say, he wanted his people to live here. This was the land that was set apart. It was God's holy city. This was the city for God's people to live in. And who's living there now? Let's consider our text from last week. Who's living there? Pilate's living there. Do you, you guys remember Pilate? The guy who's just so obsessed with power and he's just okay with this sham trial and he just wants to promote himself he's living there he's calling the shots does Pilate deserve to live in God's holy city no okay how about the Rome how about just all the Romans do they deserve to live there what are they doing they're squishing the Jews that live there they're saying okay Jews you can be Jewish but just stay over here do your little religious things go to church but you know don't don't actually live it out like, don't take it seriously. Just kind of, you play over here and be nice. That's what Rome is doing. Should Rome be living in God's holy city? No. Okay, how about the good guys? We've covered just about everybody except for the Jews. Should the Jews be living in God's holy city? I mean, it is. It, it is their city, right? No. Last week, what did they say about Jesus? They said... This guy is not our king. Caesar is. Do you see where I'm going with all this? The only person that's worthy to be in God's holy city is Jesus, and he's the guy being cast out of it. And so after being betrayed and abandoned by his disciples, and he's just been given a mock trial by night, which was demanded by the people that he chose, Israel, and under the authority of a corrupt leader, Jesus goes out. This is why Jesus fulfills God's law, by being cast out, because everyone else deserves it, and they're hopeless unless he does it himself. Do you get that? 
Remember the book of John so far? That's what we've been doing for the past year. Jesus is the Word, God in the flesh. Remember in John, it said later on, and it says that's why Jesus did all these works. That's why he came and did all these things, so that you might believe. This death is his greatest work. So he isn't just allowing death to happen. He's not just a good guy that got killed. He's making sure it happens. He's willingly cast out. He's willing to become the leper, the one with a discharge. He's willing to become the blasphemer. He's willing to become the sinner. Here's the implication from this whole section. Sin must be cast out. And Jesus became sin. Now here's an application question that I have to ask you. Do you cast out sin like Jesus was cast out here? Or do you make peace with sin? Maybe you're just, maybe you're okay with it. Here's a few ways that you might examine yourself. Do you have double standards when it comes to sin? Here's an example. You're watching football and, oh man, that commercial comes on. You know, that's kind of risque. I got to change that. That's, that's not cool. And you change it. But then the next commercial comes on and it's a, just a horribly dysfunctional family. And you laugh and, oh, that one's cool. You, you, you hated this one, but this one was okay. Maybe you're even eating a big bowl of ice cream while you're doing it because the ice cream tastes good and you're not even hungry. And you think to yourself, man, I'm getting that, you know, get behind me, Satan, change that channel, and then you eat the ice cream. I have no idea how deep it goes for some of you. Maybe you just complain. Anybody here complain? When's the last time, when's the last time today that you looked at somebody who's above you and you thought, I could do it better than that guy? When's the last time you made a political comment on Facebook thinking, man, I wish we could just change stuff? When's the last time today for some of you? Maybe it's not political. You know, kids, maybe just think, you know, I would, I could do it better than my parents. Maybe your boss, maybe you're just... Maybe you're just silently angry at your boss all day and you think it's cool because you don't say anything. Like you think, well, as long as I keep it to myself, it's all right. Jesus says it goes to the heart. If you think it, it's a sin. And here's the excuse we tell ourselves because our lives are so covered in this stuff. We say to ourselves, it's just who I am. Or we say, it's too late. I can't change that stuff. I've been doing it for 60 years. How can I stop now? See, we tell ourselves it's just who I am. But guess what? Jesus died for who you were. So that you could be new. That's why Jesus is going to the cross. For every sin that we do not cast out. And have not cast out. And because Jesus was cast out, we're then actually set free to cast out the sin. Do you see? 
It's not that you set, you cast out the sin and then you're okay with Jesus. He dies for it and then you just thank him for picking up the check. That's how you live the rest of your life out. And we can reject sin, not because we're awesome, but because we love Jesus. Now, if you think God's, God hates sin so far, we're actually just warming up. So we're going to keep going to, to point two. Jesus wasn't just cast out. He was crucified. I'm going to cover verses 18 through 24. One of the biggest misinterpretations that people make about Jesus is they say he was a good guy who got murdered. You know, like, like this was unexpected. Like, oh, maybe if he would have ducked that, maybe he could have maybe lived out some more and done some more cool stuff. Friends, Jesus didn't just know it. He didn't just know he was going to die. This was in the Old Testament hundreds of years before. Even how Jesus would die. And this scene might look out of control, but it's not. These next seven verses, they have three prophecies, and I'd like to point those prophecies out so that you can know personally how much this was divinely ordained. In verse 18, Jesus was treated as a criminal. Jesus, the scene is, he was hung between two convicted men, two men who were guilty, two men who deserved to be up on that cross, according to Roman law. And um, this is a prophecy that's that's uh, spoken of in Isaiah chapter 53. You don't have to go there. Isaiah 53 says, He would be numbered with the transgressors. Now, this is a bullseye from earlier that I was talking about right here. Because nobody kept the law perfectly except Jesus. Nobody. Yet here he hangs as a criminal. See, the world actually thought it was doing doing itself a favor when they put Jesus up there. I mean, consider the pain and the disrespect that Jesus is suffering right now. This is not a good man dying. This isn't like us when it's like, oh, I didn't deserve that. Like, you know, I was kind of speeding, but only like by three miles. Like, I was only kind of doing it. Or, you know, I only missed the meter by like four minutes, so that doesn't count. This isn't that. This is perfection. This is the righteous judge of heaven and earth leaving the bench and going to prison when the bullseye should have been on anyone else. That's what this is. Implication. Jesus was convicted of the world's sin. Second thing is he was named king. Verses 19 through 22. I mean, let's, let's look at this text first and then go back to the Old Testament. In verse 20, King of the Jews is written in three languages. I mean, re- remember what the Jews said in the last chapter? They said, this guy's not our king. I mean, the, the Jews are able to read this and then it gets confusing and, and they tell Pilate, hey, you should change the sign. Like, this doesn't belong up here. Because earlier in the chapter, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the crowds would not be denied. And Pilate caves to them then and he puts Jesus up on the cross. But then look at verse 22. They tell him to change the sign. He doesn't. Why did, why did he cave to them then, but not now? Well, my educated answer is that I do not know. 
But I do know that Pilate is historically regarded as a very self-centered person. And we've seen evidence of that in his interactions with Jesus so far. What did he say? I have the power to like take life and 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 give it and I can free you and or I can I can destroy you because I'm Pilate. I mean that's pretty much what he said so far from this little glimpse that we've caught of him. And um and he's been baffled by the Jews. I mean after he talks to Jesus, he goes back to the Jews and he says, you know what, I, I don't think, you know, he hasn't done anything wrong. But they just demand it and they demand it and he finally caves into the pressure. And and my guess is this. Here's my guess as to why he he goes along with them earlier, but but here he doesn't. I think he's just baffled by the Jews and he's sending them a message. He's sending them a message up on that cross and the cross says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, and below it is a dead man. The message is, Jews, this is what Rome does to kings. That's what I think he's saying. And you know what? Even if that's not his goal, the crazy thing is that Pilate has no idea how profound he's being here. Because the fact that Jesus is named king is the fulfillment of a prophecy that's given in 2 Samuel 7 to a guy named David who's the ancestor of Jesus. In 2 Samuel 7, David says this, God said to me, when you lie down, I will raise up through your offspring a king and his throne will last forever. That's Jesus. Because his lineage connected to David is clear in Matthew. But what's Jesus to Pilate? He's just another guy to kill so that Pilate can stay in charge. Right? Just mow him down and stay the boss. So Pilate bestows maybe this little honor on Jesus, king of the Jews, this weird people that just demands that I kill people that don't break laws. But is Jesus' kingship actually determined by Pilate? Because Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. I mean, it's his mindset that Jesus is king because Pilate says so. But is that true? No. All throughout John, Jesus' kingship is on whose authority? Is it on Jesus' authority? No. Jesus is saying, it's on God's authority. I mean, remember how Jesus got to the cross? submitting to God's authority. Do you see a theme there? It's all about he's following the Father's will and not his own will, and nobody believes him. And that authority, God's authority, ordered his death before Rome even existed. I mean, this Second Samuel stuff, this is like 800 B.C. May, I mean, I'm not even a history guy. That's my best guess, at least 800 years in advance. Authority that ordered his death before Rome even existed. An authority that called him king. But Jesus took that crown of thorns. That was the kingly crown that he took. And so, part C, he's, he was left with nothing. Verses 23 and 24. Even his clothes are taken away. I mean, we're generous. Whenever you look at a picture of Jesus being crucified, he's usually like kind of muscular and he's like partially clothed that's not how it worked I'll leave it there 
This was all he had, his clothes, and they were taken away from him too. This is everything. I mean, we have yard sales because we can't get rid of this stuff fast enough, right? I mean, who who did a yard sale this year? Who's going to do one? We have stuff, and Jesus has nothing. And all of our stuff, the stuff we worship daily that grieves God, it is the stuff of future yard sales. That's everything we own. And Jesus has nothing. And even this is prophesied. We just read it in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a prophecy of Jesus' death. I mean, read it. It even says, my hands and feet are pierced by my enemies. David is referring to crucifixion. And as far as I know, that wouldn't be invented for 300 years by the Persians. David called it 300 years in advance. And you know what? Even if that's not historically accurate, David called for the method of Jesus' death over 800 years before it happened. And um, whenever crucifixion was invented, people say that the Romans perfected it to achieve the most humiliating, the most painful death possible. And this is after Jesus was given the type of beating that often killed people. Lots of people didn't even make it to the cross. Here's the implication for this whole section. God hates sin, so he killed Jesus. Application. So the sins that you're not casting out, the stuff we talked about in part one, Jesus died for them too. Even, even as maybe I read that stuff and I started talking about the, you know, the, all the political complaining that we do and all the, the, um, the double standards that we hold. And maybe in your mind you thought to yourself, man, I can't get rid of it. Jesus died for those. So your double standards can be laid down today. And you're complaining, bitter heart. You can hand that over. And that's not a suggestion from me. That's a command from God. And here's what I'm talking about. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you if you're a Christian unless indeed you fail to meet the test. That is from a letter written to a church. You know what that means? That means if you call yourself a Christian and there's any sins that you are nursing and preserving and you're holding on to, you need to ask yourself this, am I really a Christian? Do I actually believe that Jesus paid it all or is it just a show? Because if you don't believe that Jesus paid the bill and your life ends, that bill is coming back to you and you will not be able to pay. And I say this because I'm one of your leaders, not because it's easy. I don't even know some of you. I can feel the bullseye light up on my back just saying that stuff. But if I don't show you the depths of your sin, Jesus will mean nothing to you. And that would make me a bad leader and a false teacher. So I have to say it. Anybody feel the weight of their sin? 
Maybe your bullseye just got even bigger. But here's the hope. In this next section, we're going to see what Jesus does as he's dying on the cross. That should give all of us tremendous hope. Part three, he cared for the helpless. This is the last few verses. Now look at what's happening in this dark scene as Jesus lay there up on the cross. Consider Mary, his mother. Her son is dying horribly. What's going through her head? Maybe she's thinking, that's my son up there. Maybe she's thinking, am I next? Like, is the next cross for me? Because they know that this is my son? Are they coming for me? I have no idea what's going through her head. I bet she's not happy. Here's a crazy thing. Mary is probably 40 or 50 years old at this point. In this culture, that means you're near the end. Where's Joseph? Where's Jesus' dad? He's probably dead. The last time Joseph is mentioned in Scripture is when Jesus is 12 and they go to the temple. That's the last time you hear from Joseph. She's probably completely alone. None of her kids believe in Jesus. They all mocked him. She jumped in earlier in Jesus' ministry. And now she's alone. And Jesus looks at her. He, and he looks at the beloved disciple, who is John, the author of this book. And he tells him to take care of one another. He says, now you're family. You don't have a family? Now you're one. I love that this text falls on Mother's Day. Jesus is dying on a cross as he's saying this. He's selfless. I mean, what would we do if we were up there? I can clearly remember times when a friend graciously invited me and he took me to lunch and he sat me down and he very gently gave me a rebuke and I instantly went into self-defense mode. Now, how do you think a guy like me would do if instead of kind feedback over lunch, I was dying on a cross and mocked? How would you do? As the life is literally draining out of him, Jesus is caring for his mother and his disciple. And not only that, he's actually fulfilling another one of God's laws. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 command children to do what? It commands them to care for their parents as they get old and helpless. Like they cared for us when we were young and helpless. Isn't this a picture of the church? I mean, think about Mary and John made family because Jesus said so. The church is people who have nothing in common and they're made family by Christ. And so we help one another as we look to the cross and as we go on mission and we preach the gospel undiluted and we preach it true. Remember the mission, church? Go and make disciples. That is a high charge. Jesus commanded that to fishermen and tax collectors before he rose. That is a high charge. And we're going to fail. Because I know there's just 
bucket. I, if we went around and just played everybody's darkest secrets up on the screen, I mean, who would be left? God picked us to show how awesome he is. So we're going to fail, but we can help one another do it and believe in the gospel. Because, friends, because of Christ, the bullseye is gone. No more bullseye. All the ammo was spent on Jesus. So we get to go to work. There are so many applications at this point, but I'm going to stick to four. Here are four things that you can do, church. Number one, you can welcome godly rebukes. Don't just accept them, welcome them, invite them in. Proverbs 17.10, you can write that down. It says, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. I know some fools. <laughs> but a rebuke goes deep into a person. You have the opportunity to be taken deep into the depths of your sin so that you can see the depths and the height of God's grace. Here's your challenge for the week. I want you to ask someone you lead how you can grow as a leader. Someone that you are in charge of or you care for. I want you to ask them how you can grow as a leader. Not if you can, how you can. Spouses, I'm talking to you. Em- employees, people talking, you know, bosses, employees. That's what I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to the brothers and sisters out there. You're an older brother or sister. Ask your little brother or sister, how can I care for you more? You ever do that? It's amazing. And um, here's, here's the thought. If you ask them and they don't say anything, that might not be a good thing. It might be that they're terrified of you. Because you can go up to somebody, you can say, hey, is there any way I can grow? What are they going to say? Come on. Especially if you write their checks. They're not going to give you honest feedback. You take them out to lunch and you ask them. And then when they tell you, you thank them. That's what I mean. I want you to do that this week. Thank them. And then actually consider how you can grow. One of the, one of the best things that I've ever heard, a buddy of mine, he, he took his son out and he said, how can I be a better dad? He took his son out for breakfast and said, tell me, how can I be a better dad? And his son, who's like seven, looked at him and said, I wish you wouldn't get so mad. <laughs> you have the opportunity to care for your kids this morning. Bosses, you can care for your employees. Husbands, wives, you can care for each other. Ask that because Jesus took it on the cross. Number two, you can forgive foolish criticism. Jesus did. Number three, you can know the difference between number one and two. You can know the difference between godly rebuke and foolish criticism because I know people who think everything falls under number two. You know, if, if, they, if they hear anything bad about them, they're just like, well, I've rebuked that in the name of Jesus. That's what they say. Here's how you can know the difference between a godly rebuke and foolish criticism. You can assume the best of them and the worst of yourselves. 
Know them. You want to know them. You ask questions humbly. You know, so if somebody says something like, I don't think you're a good listener, you're like, what? <laughs> don't do that. Ask questions humbly. Remove yourself as much as possible emotionally from however you would react and just listen to them. Just take it in. And then search yourself. Psalm 139. The Lord knows us. Hebrews 4.12. The, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Dive into the scriptures and search and just say, am I sinning here? You can know. Like, am I doing things selfishly? You can know. And even if you're not sure, just assume the worst of yourselves and the best of somebody. I've never seen a situation in that in which that was a bad idea. Here's the last one. It's the biggest one, I think, because we're, we're bunch of church people. We're nice, I think. I don't know some of you. <laughs> you can give a godly rebuke in love. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What I mean is that if, if, you're, if you're thinking of those, those unconfessed sins, those ones that weren't handed over earlier, you know, and, and you're seeing your brother and you're like, I'm concerned about that guy. You go tell him. Don't wait. I say this often, but when, when, when people choose to go to hell, they should do it by stepping over our outstretched arms as we die. That's how people should go to hell. But instead, when we curse them and when we mock them, they're running to hell and we're just giving them Gatorade. We're just like, keep running, buddy. Don't do that. You can give a godly rebuke in love. I'm going to close with a quote by one of my favorite authors, a guy named John Piper. He speaks a little bit about God's care for Mary. And um, then I'm going to close this. In one sense, it is very risky to hear and do the word of God. For the word of God is always calling us to sacrificial acts of love. Did you get that in the text today? Luke 9.23 says... He who would come after me, let him, let him deny himself and let him take up his cross and follow me. But in another sense, there is nothing safer and nothing more rewarding than to hear and do the word of God. Because Jesus said, those who hear and do the word of God are my mother and my brothers. Loving obedience to the word of God puts us in a relationship to Jesus which is more intimate and more certain to be heard and helped than his nearest family relations. So you can see now what a tremendous encouragement it is to our faith when Jesus makes provision for the needs of his mother at Calvary. Those who hear and do the word of God have an even greater claim on Jesus' care than she does. So if he took care of her, will he not much more provide for all your needs, O ye of little faith? Yes, he will. The bullseye is gone. All the ammo was spent on Jesus so that we can run hard. He proved his kingship by being cast out and killed to save the world 
so that we could run hard for the gospel. Let's pray.